welcome to the live stream service of Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. You know, in some in some uh, circles, uh, typically Baptist circles, uh, the beginning of the service would be the occasion where uh, uh, the announcer or the preacher would uh, encourage the the families of the congregation to turn to the, your left or to turn to your right and to greet somebody. And uh, we can't do that right now, uh, as there's nobody in the sanctuary. But uh, why don't you take the uh, take a minute and uh, uh, um, greet your fellow church family members and visitors who are in channel. Uh, greet the person to your left in the channel, and turn to your right and greet the person uh, to your right in the channel. Uh, it's just a way that the families and uh, and members of uh, Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church get a, uh, some semblance of uh, a little bit of fellowship this morning. So I, I do uh, appreciate each and every one of you who are joining in and listening. Uh, and taking the time uh, to uh, digitally uh, be here and listen to uh, the scripture reading and the word of God as it is uh, exposited. For our public scripture reading, uh, we're, we're going to finish out Numbers chapter 21. And this is going to set us up for uh, a passage uh, in the Pentateuch that I think some of us are, are probably familiar with, the uh, the incident with uh, Balaam, uh, an infamous false prophet. Uh, the, the verses we're going to read in Numbers 21 will pick up at verse 11 and finish out the rest of the chapter. This is going to set us up for the Balaam incident. Numbers 21, verse 11. And it, this is just after the, uh, the bronze serpent uh, incident. They, being Israel, journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ai-Abarium in the wilderness, which is opposite Moab to the east. From there they set out and camped in Wadi Zared. From there they, uh, from there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Supa, Sufa, and the wadis of the Arnon, and the slope of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar, and leans to the borders of Moab. From there they continued to Beer, that is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people that I may give them water. See, the Lord is still providing for them. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, which the scepters, with the scepters and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they continued to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bemoth, and from Bamoth to the valley that is in the land of Moab, at the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So, so Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon. Ammon. For the borders of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So, that, so let the city of Sihon be established, for a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It, devi it devoured Ar of Moab. Sorry, something flashed up on my computer. Um, 
Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Deban. Then we have laid waste even to Nopha, which reaches to Mediba. And just as a side note, any time someone makes songs because of uh, uh, to commemorate your defeat, that is a, a must be a pretty significant defeat. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left left him and they possessed his land now maybe some of you are wondering what what is the takeaway what what why are we reading this uh this passage is not given to us as a as a prescription or so that we can see uh uh, how we can take victory over our enemies no uh this is not a prescription for conquest this is a description of god's faithfulness i want you to remember uh what we read in the beginning of this chapter that the people again complained against God's provision. They complained against Moses and Aaron. Uh, they, these, are a, these are a malcontent, grumbling people. Uh, and uh, uh, yet God is still faithful. He is leading them to water. We know from other passages that he caused their sandal to not wear out. He is, he is defeating their enemies and delivering entire cities uh, into their hands. They, Israel is drinking from wells they did not drink. They are sleeping uh, in houses they did not build because God is being kind and gracious to Israel. That's the takeaway. God is a faithful and kind God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to remember your your faithfulness. Help us to remember your grace. Help us to uh, may we be a people who rely on your grace and, and not presumptuously, but but out of faith. We remember that uh, uh, that you chose Israel, not because they were a great people, not because they were a numerous people, not because uh, they were a strong people. In fact, they were the least of all the nations of the earth and they were the most helpless, uh, a people utterly in bondage and in slavery and yet you chose to be kind to their forefathers. You chose to, to give a, a, a wonderful covenant and promise to their forefathers. And out of fidelity and faithfulness to that covenant, you remained faithful and good and kind and patient to these people. And the same is, is still true today. You are still kind. You are still gracious. You are still uh, incredibly patient despite the uh, lack of contentment that we may have, the lack of contentment uh, we may be showing as as we uh, are agitated and, and have uh, fearful anxiety uh, in light of just our lives being uh, turned upside down right now. We thank you, Father, that you are still incredibly kind and patient. You are faithful Uh, to those upon whom you have set your everlasting love. And we thank you. And for these reasons, we exalt your name and we praise you. You are a God who is imminently worthy of all praise. Amen. All right, turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians and... uh, Put while, while it is on my mind, put your finger in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, we're going to look at that uh, a little later, but um, today we're going to uh, we're going to cover all of verse four, um, except for the very last two words, which I would argue is actually part of verse five. But that's neither here nor there. 
Um, we are going to cover verse 4, and I know I said last week that we were going to speed things up a little bit, but this is not only a uh, the foundation for everything that follows, it's also a weighty doctrine that I think, uh, uh, in fact, I know some people um, have uh, a hesitancy um, to accept this. Uh, they have a hesitancy to embrace this doctrine. Some people, uh, some professing Christians even flat out reject this. And so I want to take today to cover uh, the doctrine of election. And I want to demonstrate that the doctrine of election, as, as Paul describes it here and as the rest of the Bible uh, presents it to us, it is an incredible blessing. I want us to see today uh, the blessing that is God's election. Now, we we said last week, rather Paul said last week, that God is to be praised. He is to be blessed. Good things are to be said uh, of him because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And verse 4 uh, says, just as, and that is a... Um, that is, it kind of sounds weird in the English. This is what is called a, uh, a causal conjunction, uh, or I'm sorry, a causal conjunction. This is uh, uh, explaining what Paul means uh, by, by the, the, um, every spiritual blessing, and, and it explains why uh, uh, Paul is saying that God is to be blessed. He is to be blessed because or for. And then he goes through a series of reasons uh, uh, just explaining and highlighting the worthiness of God. And it begins with this foundational um, doctrine of election. Uh, so let me say this again clearly. Our thinking well of God, which should uh, impact our speaking well of God, our praise, our worship, our adoration of God begins with this doctrine of election. It begins with the fact that in Christ, God the Father elected us in eternity past. That is where our worship begins. It is everything that we have, everything for which we are to be thankful is built upon the foundation of God's uh, election, God's choice in that. Uh, the salvation that we have, your salvation, my salvation, uh, began in the mind of God well before the world began. That is when he chose us. And it, and it would have been well and good if, if God had just merely provided the opportunity for us to be saved and then it came down uh, to, the, to our individual choice to decide if, if we want to capitalize uh, on, on the opportunity that God provides. That, if that were the case, God would still be good. God would still be uh, worthy of praise. But, uh, you know, he, he still would have done a very kind and generous thing. But... Um, the truth is, is God has done so far much more than just merely providing the opportunity to be saved. The truth is, is that God planned it. God planned our salvation. God purposed our salvation. He accomplished our salvation in Christ. The truth is this, beloved, that, uh, that God has done everything as it relates to uh, our salvation. And if we're going to have the right view of God, if, if our worship is going to be uh, what God deserves and what God uh, calls of us, it begins with understanding that our blessings aren't our blessings because we have somehow uh, even partially cooperated with God. That, that would mean that we would get partial credit and that we deserve uh, at least a part of the praise worship done's right worship done uh, done right begins with understanding that god has done everything it began in his mind long ago when his sovereign choice of who would be saved was set into heavenly stone now i have three goals today three goals first uh i want to briefly explain the doctrine of election and to that end we will be going we'll be focusing on verse four verse four paul gives us the means the timing and the purpose 
of election. So that's going to be a mini outline, the means, the timing, and the purpose of election. All that's in verse 4. And that's my first goal. My second goal will be to uh, briefly address some of the main responses or or criticisms to this doctrine. Uh, And then third, I want to explain why this doctrine, why God's divine sovereign election is such an incredible blessing for us. So I want to I want to explain the doctrine itself. I want to talk about some of the responses to the doctrine, and then I want to explain why the doctrine's so good. Now let's let's read verse four. Just as or because uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And as I said, I think in love really belongs with verse. So let's look first at the doctrine of election itself, the doctrine of election. And and first, the first point of that would be the means of election. Paul, Paul says, just as he chose us, I want you to see that the word chose is, is right there. Chose that this is the this is the same word for which we get elect and they mean the same thing. Uh, the word uh, meant to, to choose to elect to select, to appoint, um, everything from, uh, from a democratic society appointing rulers, uh, who the rulers would be, you know, think, uh, think of, of ancient Greece. Um, it would be uh, uh, the captain of a ship uh, appointing, selecting and appointing which of, his, uh, which of the ship crew would be uh, working at the oars. Um, it would also be used of a, of a general uh, selecting or choosing which of his soldiers are going to be stationed where. Uh, and it was used of the ancients when they decided which of their K-cups they would put into their Keurigs each morning. Uh, and that can be a very hard decision, I, I, I know. Uh, it just simply means to choose, to select, uh, to make a choice, to appoint. And the, 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 the point is this. Frankly speaking, the God of the Bible is a choosing God. The, the biblical God is an electing God. And, and I want to make something very clear when I say this. When we're talking about a choice, one thing that, dis, that uh, makes God's choice different from when we make choices is that um, God's choice we say is sovereign or we say that it is it is free and that's to mean that when god makes a choice it's his choice and it's it's his choice alone uh no one is above him no one is uh compelling him to do anything no one is twisting his arm um uh he is free to make whatever choice he wants and for his own purposes. That's what we say when we say that, that his choice is free or sovereign. It's at the end of the day, it is, it is his choice. And we see that throughout the Bible. We see uh, God choosing certain people uh, uh, in certain places under certain circumstances to do certain things uh, to accomplish certain ends. But they are always, <coughs> they are always his choice. And there, there are uh, many ways that God's choice is, is seen in the Bible, but here are three, uh, we, we can uh, group them in, or at least try to group them in, into three broad categories. The first one is, is called theocratic election. Theocratic election. And think about this, in, in, in the Old Testament, how many peoples, how many people groups, how many nations did God choose? One. There were many nations, and yet God chose one people to be his people. He chose one nation to give, uh, to enter into covenant with, and that was Israel. And to reinforce uh, the, under, the, the caveat, I should say, that I, I laid down, that God's choice is free, that it is sovereign, um, that, it, that he is not under compulsion with respect to uh, inequality, uh, or any goodness or any desirability within the object of his choice, uh, Moses reminds Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, he reminds them of this humbling reality. He says, The Lord 
has the Lord your God has chosen you, that's the same word, uh, to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but here it is, because, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath with which he swore to your forefathers. And we, we, we read through Genesis uh, several months back, I think it was even a, a year or two ago, uh, we read through the biographies of uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob and you know what? They sure had a lot of blemishes in their life. One of my professors from seminary uh, called them spiritual warts. God blessed these men and entered into covenant with them despite them having many warts. God chose to call them. He chose to uh, give and reaffirm his covenant with them. Uh, and just f- for your own exercise, go and read Genesis twelve one to 3. When, when God gives the, the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. And ask yourself this question. What did Abraham do to deserve that covenant? That, that covenant? What did Abraham do to get God's attention and to, and to convince God that he was worthy of uh, entering into contract with? Um, and here's, here's, here's the answer. Absolutely nothing. God's choice of Abraham was completely free, completely sovereign. Nothing about Abraham uh, warranted that attention. So that's, that's, um, that's theocratic election. There's also occupational election. Even, with, even within Israel, God chose certain men and, and even certain women. I'm looking at, at you, Miriam and Deborah. Uh, and he gave these individuals specific and individual responsibilities and privileges that other people didn't get. He, he selected, he chose certain people to be in certain circumstances and to be given uh, and to exercise certain privileges and responsibilities that he didn't give to other people. He chose some that, uh, and, and he did not choose others. Moses uh, was chosen to lead uh, the exodus. Moses was chosen and appointed to give the law to Israel. Aaron was chosen to be priests. Uh, the Levites were chosen uh, to minister and to, to tend to all the needs of the, of the tabernacle. And again, I want to reinforce the understanding that when God chooses, it's, it, it is a free, it is a sovereign choice. It is not, it is not a choice made with any um, consideration or, or respect to any special quality within the object of his choice. Uh, remember, when God chose Moses, even Moses, Moses was the first to admit, God, I, I am not an eloquent man. Uh, Misa don't speak so good. Uh, I am not the best candidate for the job. Uh, and remember how quickly Aaron, Aaron who is supposed to be uh, an icon of, of religious and spiritual fidelity. He was to be the, the, the high priest. He was to be an intercessor for the people. He was uh, to mediate on behalf of the people. And how quickly did he, uh, when the people grumbled, did he just cave in and he took their golden jewelry and he made a calf for them to worship? Remember how quickly Korah, uh, who was a Levite, uh, led the people to grumble and compl- complain and revolt against Moses and Aaron and Miriam. God's choice of, of, of these individuals was sovereign and it was free. It was not made with respect to any inherent quality uh, in those individuals. In the New Testament, uh, we, see, we see the same thing. We see the same sovereign, free uh uh, selection and choosing an appointment made by Jesus. In Mark 3.3, 3, we see Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. Mark 3.13, he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12 to be with him. 
John 670 says, uh, he, he says to them, when, when, when everyone else is leaving, that's John 666, um, uh, he says, you're not going to leave too, are you? And Peter says that great response to, to where would we go? To whom would we go? But the, then Jesus makes it very clear. It's not because they're so great. It's not because the disciples are so stalwart. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a, is a devil? And the way the question is phrased, it's not a question. Uh, the implied answer is, yes, I did choose you. Uh Acts, um, so that's occupational election, but then there's also salvific election, uh, and this is uh, this is what is pertaining to our our passage today. Salvific election, um, Acts thirteen forty eight. When the Gentiles uh, heard Paul's preaching, uh, Luke writes, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is: as many as had been appointed. To eternal life, believed. Uh, Eric, my screen is black. Is is the recording still going? Okay, I can't see nothing. Uh, but, but Eric says I'm still going. So, um, as many as ha- as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Not as many as fell to burning in their bosom, or as many as as had the sense to 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 see the value at, uh, in turning to Jesus, or as many as chose the Lord. It's as many as had been appointed. That is a passive action. Think about that. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Romans nine. Romans 9, Paul knew this, was a contra- this had become a controversial doctrine, so he addresses this in Romans 9. Uh, he talks about the fact that God's choosing in an election goes all the way back and can be seen in Genesis with two twin boys in the womb, Jacob and Esau. And Paul says very clearly, uh, Romans 9, 11, for the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. That, that, that's an emphatic statement. Before they were born, which obviously is before they could do anything uh, to get God's attention. But he says this, so that, here, purpose clause, so that God's purpose according to his choice, some translations even say, according to his election, would stand. In other words, so that all the world would know that the biblical God is a choosing God. And then not because of works, but be... And here, here's another synonym. Uh, here's another way to, to refer to God's election. Uh, but because of him who calls, it was said... The older shall serve the younger. And just as it is written, if, in case you don't know who the older and who the younger were, was, uh, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And I'll remind you of Spurgeon's uh, uh, pithy um, comment on that. The amazing thing is not that God hated Esau. The amazing thing, the things that should just knock your socks off, uh, is that is that God loved Jacob in the first place, that God favored, that God chose Jacob. Uh, Paul continues again uh, with he understands this is a difficult doctrine. This is a doctrine that rubs it rubs the flesh, it it rubs the mind, uh, and it rubs pride the wrong way. He says, "What shall we say then?" There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on the worthy, on the qualified, on, on those who deserve it, on I will have mercy on the seeker. No, what does he say? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he, he yet again says it another way to drive this point home. So then, it, which is this whole uh, matter of salvation as it pertains to election, it does not depend and, uh, on the man who wills or the man who runs, or, or in other words, anything he does. It doesn't depend 
Salvation does not depend on nothing in man, but on God who has mercy. Uh, Church, I, I hope you can see that the Bible portrays and declares God is a choosing God. God is an electing God. Now, as I said, uh, uh, this rubs some people the wrong way. There are plenty of objections, and I, wa- I want to look to at least two responses to election. But I want to finish up Paul's thought uh, uh, and, and what he has to say about this doctrine in verse 4. Um, so, so that was the means of election, God's sovereign choice. That's how God elected. He just simply chose. The t- what about the timing of God's election? When did he choose us? Well, the, for, for the believer, the timing of God's choice for, for him or for her uh, is, is very much like the timing uh, of God's choice of Jacob over Esau. It was before we were born. It was before it was long before uh, we could do anything or before we had done anything, before we could prove ourselves, before we could uh, try to garner or warrant God's uh, divine recognition uh, by anything we could do. I, you know, I, I used to play uh, baseball uh, in, um, with my friends back in elementary school, and I, I can remember uh, uh, just eagerly trying to get picked. I can, and I can remember... Uh, just trying to get uh, the the team captain's attention. You know, pick me, pick me, pick me. Come on, I'm worth it. I'll, you know, I'll hit a home run for you. Uh, God chose us before we could ever say, God, pick me. God, choose me. It was long before that. The timing of his choice was before we came to be. And in fact, it was even before that. It was before the world came to be. His God's sovereign free choice of every Christian was, in fact, time-stamped, says Paul. It was time-stamped before the foundation of the world. He says it right there. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And Genesis 1.1 says that uh, uh, time-stamps when the world was founded. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul says, before that, it was before Genesis 1-1 when God said, I'm going to save Davis Alec. I'm going to appoint Bethany Lafferty to be saved. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to save Eric Carlson and Aaron Stogner and Amanda Jensen and so on and so on. And so on. And some people think that there's this period of time up in heaven where where God and the angels did who knows what, and 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 Satan and the and the demons rebelled, and after some time, then He created the earth. Uh, that's not the case. It was God chose us even before before all that. I think, by the way, I think all that took place between uh, Genesis one and um, between the fall of man, but. In the beginning means when it all began and and the timing of our choice, the timing of God's sovereign choice of us was before that. It was before that. And that is just remarkable. That is incredible. Uh, It it is an incredible, um, it is amazing, and it is a humbling thought uh, just just to think about that God has been thinking about me and that God has been thinking about you uh, God has been thinking about his gracious intention for you and his and his gracious and glorious purpose for your very existence. He's been thinking about these things. Thoughts of you uh, have been occupying his mind since before he created heaven and earth. Before angels existed, before before Satan existed, God had thoughts of you and of me and of everyone who would come to faith in Christ. That is just simply spectacular and amazing. That's the timing of our, of our election. What about the purpose of our election? What, what, what is the goal? What is the aim? Why did God save us? Well, Paul says that as we, as we conclude verse 4. Here's another purpose clause. 
that, so that, you, you could add the so, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, it's right to say that God chose us freely and sovereignly. Uh, God chose us without respect to anything that we did or anything that we were um, or anything that was in us. But here's a blessed truth. His choice did involve what would become of us. Uh, and specifically, or to be more precise, his choice of us involved what he would accomplish and do in, with, and through us. And that is that we would become and be holy and blameless before him. Think about that. God saved us. God saved you. You have been occupying God's mind since before uh, the world was founded for the purpose, for the, for the intention that you would be holy and blameless before him. Holiness. We've, we've looked at this word. We saw this word in verse 2. Holiness means set apart. Um, and, and, it, and it came to, uh, to, uh, to include the meaning of, of moral purity and moral excellence and moral beauty. Uh, but at its base level, it means set apart. Holiness, uh, it's the same word for saint that, w- that we looked at. Uh, set apart, consecrated, distinct, different. Think about this. God saved you so that you would be distinct from others. God saved you so that you would be different from others. God saved you so that you would be different from, from everybody else. God saved you that you would be set apart from everybody else and that you would be set apart unto and for him. Now, uh, the Christian is positionally holy at the moment he is saved. Remember, uh, we said there's no such thing uh, as a partially saved Christian. Uh, you, are, you either are a believer or you're not. You're either in the kingdom or you're not. No, no, no one person has one foot in the kingdom. Um, when God saves you, he, uh, you are positionally holy the very moment you are justified. That's, in fact, what the term justified means. You are declared good and righteous in God's eyes. But our behavior is another thing. Our behavior, uh, our conduct is another thing. Uh, This is something that takes time, blood, sweat, toil, and sometimes tears uh, to, to change. And the intention is that our behavior is progressively moving more and more and more to the likeness of Christ in our Christian walk and uh, uh, a humbling and sobering truth is that it's not until we're glorified, it's not until we go to be in the presence of God, that the presence of sin is going to be eradicated from our from our bodies, and and our practice is going to fully match and uh, be in sync with our position. But that's the, that is nonetheless the goal. That is the goal. That is the purpose. That is the aim. In mind is that we would be blameless. We would be blameless. Blameless um, has the idea of being uh, without blame, without blemish, without reproach. Um, and this was the word used to describe the, the sacrificial animals that um, uh, God accepted upon the altar. It was, and it was really a word that describes um, the perfection of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, as he was accepted as a as our substitute on the cross, blameless means that being blameless like Christ means that like him we will be morally, spiritually, ethically, behaviorally perfect. We will be fully pleasing in every way to the Father, just like Jesus. That is the goal. That is the aim for us being saved holy and blameless now we've covered the means of our election the means of our election is god's free sovereign choice the timing of our election was before the foundation of the world the and the purpose of election was so that we would be made a holy and blameless people now 
let's look at some responses, uh, some, some, some criticisms of the doctrine of election. And really, there's been no shortage of, of objections. We could spend uh, much more time going over this. I only want to cover a couple. Um, but objections to God's sovereign choice uh, go all the way back to Genesis. Pharaoh objected to, to God's choice of Israel. And in fact, as we're, as we're seeing uh, in the Pentateuch, many nations didn't like the fact that God chose Israel. Uh, and they tried to stand up. Um, and even today, the, the descendants of Ishmael, uh, the, the, the Muslims, they don't like, uh, they, they oppose uh, God's choice of Israel. They, they say that God chose Ishmael and not Jacob. Um, Israel itself, herself, objected to God's choice of Moses and Aaron. And if you remember, even Moses in Exodus, I think, three or four, even Moses objected to God's choice of, of Moses. Uh, David's brothers and, and his father objected to God's choice of David. Uh, and remember, Saul, Saul had a thing to say as well about um, God choosing David. Saul and Uzziah, kings of Israel, uh, kings of uh, Israel objected to God's choice of the sons of Aaron for the priesthood. They, they both uh, stepped the stepped over the boundary mark and into the priestly office, and that cost them dearly. Uh, the, the Jews at large objected to God's choice to include the Gentiles. It's not surprising in the least, then, that uh, when it comes to uh, God's choice of, of people to be saved, that there would be some hesitancy to, to accept this, uh, some hesitancy to, to embrace it. And like I said earlier, uh, this doctrine does seem to rub the senses the wrong way. Um, one response to election is that it is, uh, it is a man-made doctrine and just simply the doctrine of election does not exist in the Bible. But it is in the Bible. Uh, it is in this text right here. He chose us. You, you can't get around that word. You can't take your um, white highlighter and, and mark over that word. Uh, but it's also in many other passages as well. And so you have to do something with election because it's clearly there. There's this passage. He chose us. First Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to God's elect. First uh, Thessalonians one four, he chose you. Romans eleven seven, Israel failed to obtain what it sought, but the elect obtained it. And so you just you can't simply ignore every time the word chose or elect comes up in the text. It, you, we can't just bury our heads, bury our heads in the sand, and say that it's not there when in fact it clearly is. So we have to do something with it. And just as a side note, an observation that, that, I, that I saw when I looked at some of these passages, most of these, except for Romans 9, you know, Paul, in Romans 9, Paul seems to understand that election is, is, a, is a hard thing for some to accept. But every other place, it's just before you even know it, you know, the election is, is mentioned and then the writer moves on as if it, as if. Uh, he assumes it's not a big deal, as if he's assuming that it is a, a belief uh, easily and readily accepted by his audience. And I think that speaks volumes. Um, so one response, as I said, is just to ignore it or say, you know, it's not there, but we can't do that. Another response is, you know, kind of a halfway uh, response is to admit that election does exist, uh, but election doesn't mean what we what what we think it means. Uh, this people who who hold to this view would say, when God chooses, it's not because He's sovereignly and freely choosing only uh, for the basis of His good pleasure. But it's because um, He has foreknowledge. Uh, and what they mean by that is that God is is looking down the pipeline. He's looking down the corridor of time, and He is going to see. Uh, something in man. He's going to see uh, who choose him, who chooses him. He's going to see uh, who has a response of faith. Uh, he's going to see who has uh, a modicum of goodness 
uh, in them. And he's going to choose those people to be saved. But what I want you to see is that in this, in this scenario, uh, in this situation, it's not really God who's effectively choosing to be saved. It, it's not, if God is looking down and he's making a choice based on something he sees, it's, he is not ordaining the individual to be saved. It's ultimately, it's, it's effectually the individual who is uh, saving himself or who is ordaining himself by something he's done or by some quality that he has. And uh, if, if you think I'm, I'm, I'm stretching it, uh, I, I want you to see that this is an impossibility when we remember what the Bible clearly says when it talks about the helpless, fallen condition of man. The Bible says straight up, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all, they have all become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. How many times did Paul have to say it and repeat it and emphasize it for the point to get across that mankind is not in a good spot? So the New Testament clearly says that, Romans 3, Romans three ten to 18. Uh, what, what you may not know is that the Old Testament says this, the, the same thing as well. Rome, in Romans 3, uh, 10 to 18, Paul is actually citing from a number of Old Testament passages, uh, several Psalms, um, one passage in, in Ecclesiastes, and uh, at least one reference to Isaiah. But everything he says in Romans 3, 10 to 18 is from the Old Testament. So, um, and then the rest of the New Testament, we have Ephesians 2, 1. We'll see this in a couple weeks. What was our condition? We were dead in the trespasses of our sins. Now, there's a reason that Paul uses that metaphor. We were dead. He could have said we were sick. He could have said we were maimed or injured or paralyzed. He could have said we were discouraged or down on our luck or maladjusted. He could have said we were uninformed. Uh, these are all the things that modern psychology uh, has, has used to try to describe um, our condition. Um, modern psychology says we just need help. You know, a sick person just needs some medicine. Uh, a maladjusted person just needs to be adjusted. Uh, an ignorant person just needs some knowledge. We need to learn better. We need we just need some therapy. Um, we just need uh, encouragement, or we need a better environment. Paul doesn't doesn't t uh, take that. He says we were dead. What can a dead man do to better his condition? Nothing. The dead man is completely and utterly helpless. The dead man is beyond all hope to do anything. And if that's true, if there is none good, if there is no, not one, as Paul says again and again, how then, I would ask you, how then can God look down the corridor of time and see good in someone when there is in fact no good to be found? Furthermore, Scripture says that what man needs to be saved is something that God graciously has to give as a gift, and that's, that's faith. Faith itself is a gift of grace that, that man can't just produce or generate. God has to give him the faith. That, Philippians 1.29, it is given to you to believe. It is given to you to believe. It is a gift that you believe. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, the faith, Paul says that the faith that saves you, it is a gift of God. It didn't originate from you. It is not of yourselves. Goodness and faith is foreign to man, and man needs God to give them to him before he can ever possess it. And James Boyce makes this astute observation or conclusion. 
He says, if God is removed as the first cause of goodness or faith or a God-directed human choice, in other words, God is just looking down and seeing what was already in man. If God is removed as the first cause of goodness, how could there be anything in man that God could look down the pipeline and, and see? What good could God anticipate in people who cannot come to him and do not seek him unless he first chooses them and sovereignly draws them to himself? Uh, maybe, maybe that's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is there's nothing for him to see. There's nothing for him to see. So the only other response that, that I'm going to address right now is, uh, is, is the response or the claim that election denies the freedom of man's will uh, or, or overrides or abrogates uh, man's responsibility, that man can't be held responsible by, by God if he isn't elect. And there's a number of passages I just want to, to draw your mind to. Uh, uh, Genesis 50:20. You'll recall this is uh, uh, Jacob has just died. Um, uh, Jacob and and um, Joseph's brothers have been brought down to uh, to uh, Egypt. Jacob has died. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers, and now that his brothers know who he is and that their father has passed away, the father uh, Jacob, who obviously loved and favored Jacob, um, Joseph, his brothers are now thinking well. Now that good old dad's gone, Joseph's going to have his revenge on us. And Joseph comforts his brothers and he says, do not worry. In Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I, I want you to see that by the inspiration of the spirit, Joseph is acknowledging, which means that God is acknowledging the, the willful guilt, the willful evil that Joseph's brothers meant. You meant it. You intended it. You willed for evil, but God meant it for good. And we know that all, all of the events, you, you read through the account of Joseph's life. Those things didn't just happen. Joseph gets thrown into a pit to, uh, to be killed uh, and one of the brothers just happens to see the, the Ishmaelites and sell them into slavery. Um, uh, and it just so happens that, you know, all, all of these events, they, they weren't uh, uh, circumstantial. They were divinely appointed events. God used the evil intention of Joseph's brothers for good, but he doesn't excuse their evil intention. God's uh, sovereign purpose does not override man's responsibility. Uh, Isaiah 10, 12 to 15. Uh, this is uh, several centuries later. Um, Assyria, God uh, raised up Assyria, much like he raised up Pharaoh, by the way. God raised up Assyria to discipline and to chastise uh, Israel for their uh, just repeated disobedience and their idolatry. Um, and we know that Assyria uh, 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 conquered the northern kingdom and dispersed virtually all of the people. Look at, look at what God says concerning Assyria in Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Now, you would think, you would think they're, you know, God clearly calls them the rod of my anger, uh, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. You would think with God labeling these people as his instrument of divine fury that, that they're, uh, uh, they're just mindless drones and they're not, they're not, they have no thoughts, they have no will or intention. They can't be held responsible for what happens. Well, look down, look down at verse um, 12. It will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, here it is, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. 
For I have understanding, and I have removed the boundaries of the people, and I, and I, and I, and I. And it's he's going on explaining his, his pride and his arrogance. Here's, here's the rub. Here's the aha moment. Look at verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? What you see that is that God had a sovereign purpose to use, uh, and he even raised up Assyria. He gave them the means to do everything that they did, but yet he at the same time judged them. He held them accountable for, for, the, for the content uh, in their hearts. God's sovereign purpose does not abrogate, it does not uh, dissolve human responsibility. John uh, John. Um, 644, uh, he, Jesus says to the Pharisees, no man can come to me when, uh, uh, unless the Father draws him. Um, and then to the same group of people, he said in the previous chapter, John 540, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You, you, you would, we would think, we would uh, naturally draw the conclusion that if God doesn't draw the people, then they're off the hook. They can't be held responsible. Yet in John 5.40, Jesus lays the responsibility at their feet. It is the, 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 their fault for not repenting does not lie in the fact that they're not regenerate. It does not lie uh, in the fact that they're not elect. Jesus lays the fault at their feet. You are not willing. You are not willing. And so what I want us to see is that it may frustrate our minds as we try to harmonize how can God's sovereignty, how can his sovereign will, how can his choosing and electing purpose as well as human responsibility, uh, how can they go side side by side? How do they harmonize in our minds? How, how do I harmonize them? Well, here's the thing. I don't know how they harmonize. But here's the, here, here's, here's the important thing. In God's mind, they do. And so I would suggest we just leave this up to him uh, and don't, don't deny uh, either truths. God is sovereign in who's saved, and yet man is responsible for his lack of belief. Both exist and both harmonize in God's mind, even when they don't harmonize in our mind. So those are, I think, the two uh, most frequent objections to this doctrine. There are more, but I'm running out of time. Point three are the blessings of election. And and I just I want to cover three. Uh, There are many, but three blessings that come as a result of understanding this doctrine. The first is that election promotes assurance. Election promotes assurance. Uh, John MacArthur says, uh, admitted one time, if I could lose my salvation, I would. And the truth is, is I think anybody who is honest with themselves uh, would say the same thing. If we could lose our salvation, if that was a possibility, uh, then we would. If, if, I, if I was somehow responsible for procuring my salvation or for, for activating it or, or starting it, then at least in some part, I am responsible for the completion of it as well. And quite frankly, that does not bode well for anybody who lives in a Roman 7, Roman seven world, which is all of us. Anyone who has to battle their sin... Calvin said, uh, if our faith were not grounded in God's election, it is certain Satan might pluck it from us every minute. And here's the blessed truth. It is grounded in God's election. Your salvation was founded and is grounded in God's election. And the Christian can, can have assurance and be comforted by the fact that what God begins, what he starts he is faithful to finish. And that's, that's assuring, that's comforting to me. And what I, what I, what I can't imagine is, is how uh, someone like a Roman Catholic uh, or, or a Mormon, how they, how they can sleep at night, 
uh, where you, the, the system of salvation that they adhere to believes that, you know, Roman Catholics believe if, if you commit a mortal sin, you can lose, you will lose your salvation. Um, what happens if you commit a mortal sin before you can be restored to the church? What happens if you commit enough sin before you can make it to, to confession? What if? What happens with the Mormon who, who is taught Second Nephi 25:23? We are saved by grace. And you say, oh, wow, that's so biblical. And I say, well, the verse isn't done yet. We are saved by grace after all we can do. Now, be honest with yourself. Who can honestly say that they have done everything they can do in their Christian walk? The Mormon believes that only that God's grace only covers you and is only applied to you once you come to the point where you've done everything you can do. That is not an assuring way of salvation. That is not a comforting uh, way of, a, of salvation. The doctrine of election, however, does give assurance that if God has started the work of salvation in me, then there's nothing that I can do to lose it. I can't undo it. I can't abrogate it. I can't repeal it. I can't lose it. I can't soil it. I can't tarnish it. I can't drop it. I, there is nothing I can do to jeopardize what God has begun in me. That's comforting. It helps me sleep at night, and quite frankly, it gives me reason for praise, and it should give you reason for praise as well. Election promotes assurance. I want you to see also that election promotes evangelism. Election promotes evangelism. Uh, one straw man that people ha- will have, uh, here, here's another small critique, is that um, if, if someone's elect, then you don't need to preach to them, uh, God's going to save them anyway. So why waste your breath preaching to people who aren't going to respond anyway? Uh, Someone said something like that to Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon responded, you know what? It would be great if God were to take uh, a can of yellow paint and put a a big yellow stripe on the backside of of people's shirts. And he said uh, if that were the case, he would go around town, up and down the streets, and he would be pulling up people's shirt tails to see if there's a yellow stripe. And that way he would only preach to the elect. But because God doesn't do that, and he doesn't know who the elect are, he will gladly waste his breath and preach to everybody. Here's the why. Knowing that God has elected some, and those whom he has elected will respond, and they will be saved. Election actually promotes evangelism, and it gives uh, uh, it, it encourages evangelism. It gives confidence that evangelistic efforts will uh, bear fruit. And if the reason someone responds positively to the gospel message lies in, in the Holy Spirit now being present in their heart and mind as a result of the Father's electing choice, that takes a huge burden off me because now I don't have to uh, find out what the latest trends are uh, or, or invest in the latest gimmicks to try to uh, uh, appeal to potential seekers who may be seeking God. I don't have to uh, uh, lose sleep wondering how can I draw people? How can I appeal to people? How can I meet their unfelt needs? Rather, I can be... I can. Uh, uh, I can be who I am, and despite my clumsiness, despite my sin that still pops up, despite me still being a broken reed and smoking flax, I can still be a mere mouthpiece for that which does have the true power of salvation. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not on me. It is so reassuring and and encouraging to know it's not on me to save people I can be a mere mouthpiece and I can leave the results up to him. Election promotes evangelism. Third, I want you to see that election promotes praise. And this ties in really to the, to the direct point that the verse is playing in the passage. Election promotes praise. As it pertains to God's choice, as we remember that election is God's choice, it is God's gift 
It is his free gift that he graciously planned, that, that, he, that graciously began in his mind and, and was graciously formulated irrespective of anything about us. Really, I mean, really, it's, it, it began with God and it's all about God. It's not about me. It's not about you. And it's not about us. God graciously gave me what I could never earn. I who deserve hell am graciously given heaven. I who was completely helpless am, am given help. I who was dead have been given life. I who was poor am now rich. I who had nothing, I, I now have everything. I who knew no peace, knew no joy, I had nothing but, but death in store for me. I now have been given every spiritual blessing and riches that surpass all understanding in Christ. I have Christ himself. Think about that. It began and is based in God's sovereign choice. And that leads to praise. The timing of, of, of his choice of us uh, promotes praise. Uh, this isn't something he just impulsively did when he when he saw uh, when he saw Charlie walking down the street whenever it was that Charlie got saved. No, he's God has been thinking about Charlie since the beginning uh, of time. In fact, before the foundation of the earth, he has been thinking about saving you for a long time, Christian. And that should lead us to praise. The purpose of his election promotes praise i mean think about this what think of all the places we go with intentions and purposes that we have i i would take my i would take my car to firestone for the purpose of it being in a better state uh, of of uh repair in the future i i myself might go to the doctors to to be uh in a better state to to get well or i would go to the gym to to get into a state of better health um, I might go see a counselor to to be uh, in a better state of uh, emotional health or, or mental health. Uh, God elected you to be in a better state than you will ever be on this earth. Think about this, or in this life rather. God saved you so that you will be perfect. Think about that. God saved you so that you would be like Christ. God saved you so that you would be holy and blameless. That's your result. That's where you're going, beloved. That is what you will be in eternity to come. That is a great and blessed future. And that's the reason we should all bless God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for this blessed text. Thank you so much for your sovereign choice of us, that, that everything we have is given to us entirely because you chose to be kind to us, because you chose to place your love upon us. If, if, there, if your love was ever conditioned upon anything in us, if it was dependent upon us being worthy uh, of your love, if it was dependent upon us being so lovable and wonderful, then, then we would have lost it so long ago. Because we really are worse off than we think we are, than we know we are. But you are kind to us. You are loving to us. You are faithful to us. Not because of us, but because of who you are. And that is a, that is a kind and loving God who chooses p to place his affection and his kindness and his faithfulness upon sinners. Thank you, Lord. Amen.